Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This podcast is intended for entertainment and opinion. Nothing discussed is meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. If you are experiencing a mental health crisis, please call 988 or use the resources listed in the episode description. To see the sources and other resources mentioned in this episode, you can visit psychologicallymindedpod.com. To contact me with any questions or comments about this topic or upcoming topics, email me at psychmindedpod at gmail.com. And finally, please rate and review this show on Apple Podcasts and subscribe wherever you listen to get new episodes as they post. Enjoy this episode! Hello, and welcome to Psychologically Minded. I'm your host, Grace Fowler, and this week we are doing the second part of the Court and Thor- of Thorns and Roses episode. If you haven't listened to part one, it came out next week or last week, and it focused on the Archeron sisters and kind of each of their journeys and kind of what they represent, mostly about trauma. And in this installment, we're going to focus on the main relationships in the book, what they have to show us about relationships, and maybe some tips and tricks for how to move forward in relationships. Um, Again, heavy, heavy spoilers, so if you have not read the books, pause here and go read them, at least the first two, if you don't want it to be spoiled. Um, Same with the first episode, otherwise you know, prepare to kind of jump in with me. So just basically kind of going in chronological order, let's start with talking about the relationship between Tamlin and Feyre. For those of you who haven't read the books, Tamlin and Feyre are kind of our biggest main characters from the very first book of the series. Tamlin is the High Fae, who is the lord of the Spring Court, and Feyre is a human girl who originally entered the fairyland because of Tamlin um, and ended up becoming Fae after a whole series of events that resulted in her kind of sacrificing her life to save the Fae people. So when we first meet Tamlin and Feyre, there is this really intense power imbalance. Tamlin is a fairy, he's a high Fae, and he's the high lord of his court. He's kind of like the most powerful fae you could get to, especially when we're first learning about the fae world. And on the and he's also like hundreds years old. <laughs> Feyre is 19 or she might be 20. She's 19 when the book starts when she meets Tamlin. 
19, human girl, lives in pretty much abject poverty, has never really ventured much outside of her home or away from her family. So not only is there like a magical power imbalance because Tamlin has magic and Feyre doesn't, but there is this kind of power imbalance in the fact that Tamlin has a lot more experience than her in life and has a lot more knowledge about the way that at least his world works than Feyre does. Even though Tamlin is like 500 years old or something like that, he appears to be a young man in his 20s. So like from the outside, it doesn't look like there's a big age gap between them. And we do need to suspend some of our belief here because it's a fantasy book and we're talking about magic, <laughs> you know, not like the real stuff. But I think the some of the issues between Tamlin and Vera are issues that you would find in relationships where there are large age gaps. And I'm not saying that relationships with age gaps are inherently bad or need to be avoided at all costs. I think that there are conversations to have about that and, you know, everybody is different and has their own limits. However, I think that regardless of who you are or what what the age gap is, there are some kind of inherent complications to having a large age gap between two partners and Feyre and Tamlin have some of those issues. I would say that the biggest issue is that Tamlin has some very concrete ideas about how relationships are supposed to go. He has these kind of very traditional gender role expectations and romantic relationship expectations that are inherently informed by being fae and by being like a royal in the fae kind of hierarchy um, and kind of assumes that Feyre will fall into those gender roles and those expectations and the biggest one he has of her is that she is weak and needs his protection and his main role is to protect Feyre. And you can tell that Tamlin kind of models what he thinks his relationship should be off of his parents' relationships. And we learn a little bit more about that in the second book when, uh, or the third book when Tamlin and Feyre kind of get reunited in a little bit. And Tamlin expects her to wear pretty dresses, to kind of sit silently, um, we see this in the second book as well. He doesn't want her to participate in the activities of his court, any of the like political activities. She's just kind of expected to be pretty and take care of the home. And he also starts to insinuate that she must be so excited to have his children and like, you know, be a, be a wife and mother. And Pharaoh's like, what are you talking about, my guy? It's like, you don't even know me. <laughs> and I think part of that comes from Tamlin being much older than Feyre, just chronologically he's in like kind of different place of what he's expecting out of his relationships and the fact that their relationship started on a lie so they didn't really know each other when their relationship started now of course the lie that their relationship started from is a very magic inspired lie and basically when Feyre and Tamlin meet Tamlin was under a curse put on him by the main villain of the first book um, where he had to wear a mask. So Feyre didn't even really know what he looked like, but basically he had to find a human woman who hated fairies and fall, have her fall in love with him. And if he didn't do that in 50 years, then uh, 
Tamlin's people would basically like be enslaved by this evil woman. So Tamlin is not able to tell her about the curse. And that's not that's not so bad. Like that wasn't Tamlin's fault. <laughs> you know, he's not able to tell her about the curse. Um, but he also did not try very hard to tell her about the curse. And there was, you know, maybe some, some more heavy lifting that he could have done. Now, on the other hand, Feyre is a, is a wee bit dense <laughs> and she doesn't, she doesn't quite pick up on some of the hints that maybe were putting down to her. Um, but ultimately their relationship does start from this place of they're not able to be fully honest with each other. And I think that that makes for a lot of complications in relationships and can make it quite difficult to recalibrate after that lie has been exposed. Now, I'm sure some of y'all listening are convinced that Tamlin and Feyre belong together. I know that there are people out there who believe that, and I'm going to let you have that opinion, but I'm going to be real with you. I don't think Tamlin and Feyre are a good match. I I think Tamlin has a lot of work that needs to be done on himself. Even though he is 500 years old, he could use a little more tuning up. <laughs> uh, and I don't, I don't think they make a, a good fit for each other. I don't think that they ever would have made a good fit for each other. And um, the way that Feyre kind of processes the relationship in the book is something that I think is very interesting, where she starts to understand, you know, Tamlin was what I needed at that time. Tamlin kind of fulfilled something that was missing in Feyre's life, which was mostly a sense of security and having her basic needs met. When Tamlin meets her, she's starving. Her family lives in like what is essentially a one-bedroom cottage. Um, she doesn't have a sense of security. She feels afraid a lot of the time. And she kind of wants a break. She wants a time where she can just kind of relax and be pampered and have her needs taken care of and not think about much. Um and she gets that with Tamlin. She does. And it was what she needed at the time. However, once she has that sense of security and then is able to feel or get to a point where, okay, now I can think kind of bigger picture. I'm not constantly looking over my shoulder so I can finally start to think about the future. Tamlin doesn't fit in with that anymore. And I think it is in a really cool thing that Moss adds into this book that Tamlin and Feyre don't stay together just because they were like the first couple that gets established in the book. That even though there was an element of like magic and fate to it, that like Feyre came in the last like few days before the curse was going to end and she ultimately does help break the curse and there's, you know, there's this like magical element to it. At the end of the day, like they're, they're not a good match for each other. They're not fated to be with each other and Feyre is able to like move on and establish a new relationship. Now, Tamlin doesn't necessarily seem to have moved on. Um, like hopefully he will in the next book that comes out. Um, but it, it is interesting to see kind of like a fantasy book that talks a lot about fate and like soulmates in a way and to have kind of like the main couple that establishes in the titular book not work out and not be a faded couple. I think it's a really interesting choice and I'm glad that Moss makes it. It's also a reminder that like it's okay to get into a relationship with someone because they're meeting your needs like at that time in your life, but don't stay in that relationship just because it was a good fit at one time. If it's not a good fit anymore, then a conversation and some reflection needs to be had about like, okay, maybe maybe it is time to like move on in some way. Um, so 
I, I could I could talk about Tamlin and Feyre for ever, and I think that Tamlin really um, goes into his incel era pretty quickly after uh, Feyre leaves him, and and that's really what makes him a disappointing character and a character that I find hard to root for. Um, he very much feels entitled to Feyre. He feels entitled to their relationship. He even goes so far as to kidnap her sisters and make a bargain with like the biggest villain in the book series to get her back. And he just like cannot respect her autonomy or her choice. Um, and his contrast to Reese is is quite strong. But before I transition into talking about Feyre and Reese, I did want to just talk about a couple of tips that can help relationships start stronger than Tamlin and Feyre's did because you know, they started off with a lie. They started off with expectations that did not match up. Um, So I would say don't copy what Damlin and Feyre did. But I was reading this article from the Gottman Institute or this blog post that was written by Garanzini and Yee, who are um, Gottman certified therapists. And they offered a couple of tips to help relationships start strong. Um, One of the tips that they offered is making sure that when you're first starting your relationship, you get into the habit of allowing space for your partner to express themselves. So this includes space for them to have their own interests, to have their own social circles, to be able to express opinions that are different than yours or interests that are different than yours, um, and to make that space like a part of your relationship. Tamlin and Feyre did not have that. Um, Tamlin was not able to accommodate Feyre wanting things outside of the court. He wanted her to kind of like be captive in their court, which is kind of like a metaphor for him wanting her to be captive in their relationship and not wanting her to change or grow or have different opinions. Because the Feyre before, before book one or in book one is very different from the Feyre of book two. She's gone through a life-altering experience and there's no space for her to explore what that means for her because their relationship is really set on this track of this is what we should do. So Garanzini and Yi say, start building that space in from the beginning. If you're building a relationship with someone that you want to be in their life for a long time, you have to like prepare yourself now for the fact that they're going to change, right? If you're going to be with a partner for 20 plus years, or that's your goal to be with them for a long time, they're going to change. People change in a span of a decade, let alone two decades. Things are going to happen. People change, interests change, priorities change. And if that space is not built into your relationship from the beginning, then you're going to bump up against each other in a way that's really quite unpleasant, in a way that like Tamlin and Feyre bump into each other. The second tip that they offer is to do what works for you and not what you think is expected of you. And I think that Tamlin could have really run a marathon with this advice if he had been given it uh, before he met Feyre. Like I was saying before, he's really stuck in these rigid ideas of this is what our relationship looks like because this is how my parents did it, and this is how it's always been done, so this is how we have to do it. And that means that they never get to decide what their relationship looks like for them. They never get to explore what actually does work. We know that Tamlin's approach to conflict is to try to basically lock his partner in his house, which I'm going to say up front is not good. 
not a good coping skill, not a good strategy. Um, but he also, because that's all he can think about, there's no, um, like ex- exploration or discussion of like, does that work for Feyre? What would work for Feyre? How could Tamlin approach her in the future to communicate his concerns in a way that she will be able to take in and vice versa? How can Feyre communicate to Tamlin that she feels trapped without basically throwing a magical tantrum and blowing up his house every few months, right? So they never come to a consensus about what what works for them because they never get to explore it. They're just stuck on, well, this is what we should do or this is what other people around us are doing. So in your relationship, do what works for you. Maybe you hear your friends or family or people around you talking about what their relationship looks like, and that's great that they have their relationship. But your relationship, you need to focus on what works for you and your partner. And that might not be what's listed in popular relationship books. It might not be what's listed, you know, what people talk about on TikToks about relationship advice. It may not always be things that I talk about on this podcast, and that's okay. But it has to be what works for you and your partner and your relationship, not just what's expected for you. And lastly, the uh, the third tip that they offer is what they call taking a yes and approach. So when your partner brings something to you, taking that yes and approach of, okay, I hear you and I'd like to add something on, rather than taking a no but approach, right? So Tamlin loves a no but approach, right? When Feyre asks him, can I join you while you go uh, survey the court being repaired, Tamlin says no, and he adds on, uh, you know, because you're you're too fragile, right? No, uh, pl- I don't want you to be hurt, and he's not able to even hear her out about why she might want to go out or explore with her what they could do to keep her safe. A yes and approach would be saying, yes, you can come with me while I go survey the court, and I'd like to bring a few extra guards to make sure that you're safe. Or yes, you can come with me to go, and I'd like us to have a, an emergency plan in case someone tries to snatch you because you're now immortal, right? <laughs> I, you know, not, not a typical conversation that you or I would be having, but that yes and approach of rather than, you know, saying that, well, my needs have to stop your needs. How can we meet those needs together at the same time? Um, So taking that yes and approach. Think of your relationship as improv, right? Rather than stopping the movement or stopping the momentum, how can you continue to work with your partner to build each other up? So again, those are all tips from uh, the Gottman Institute blog post that was written by Garanzini and Yee. And I can say that we could boil down that blog post as saying, do the opposite of what Tamlin does. <laughs> when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay, let's move on to talking about Reese and Feyre, which is, you know, my bias is showing here. This is the couple that I support. I think that Feyre much better belongs with Reese than she ever did with Tamlin. 
and there are a couple reasons why I think they make a better fit. The first one is that Reese and Feyre view each other as equals. Reese has always known, well, pretty much always known on some level that Feyre is his mate, that they are like mated to be with each other. I'm personally not as interested in the mechanics of the mating bond in the Moss universe. It's like, whatever. It's, it, I don't think it really has like a parallel <laughs> to the human world. But I do think that there is something about the fact that like Reese has a greater investment in preserving his relationship with Feyre because of this mating bond. And because he has been aware of her for so long and just wants to be able to be in her life in some capacity, he tends to look at her as more of an equal to him than as a woman, which, you know, the Fae don't really have the greatest opinions on women. Reese was luckily raised by what appears to be the Fae equivalent of a feminist, so he does seem to have a better understanding of, like, how the men and women in the Fae world can coexist. Um, but at, at the core of him, he sees Feyre as his equal. One of the ways that he demonstrates that is um, when they finally get together and they're ready to like truly cement their relationship, he makes her high lady of the night court. And just to get a little Fey political here, <laughs> the, all of the other courts of the Fey realm don't have high ladies. They have high lords, so there's always a man in charge of them. And the men have consorts, so they may get married or, you know, have some sort of relationship with a woman. They're typically male-female relationships. They'll have a woman who is, like, the lady of the court or kind of like a queen, but she doesn't hold any power. She really has, like, a, a – it's just a title, which always makes me think of, like, <laughs> Prince Philip. <laughs> because Prince Philip never got was never going to be king, right? He was Queen Elizabeth's like boy toy, right? So that's how all the ladies in the Fey world are. They're they're lady consorts or ladies of the court, but they're no there's no high ladies. And according to Tamlin, there never has been. But Reese makes Feyre his high lady, which means they have the same amount of power in the Night Court as each other. There is no hierarchy. There is no one person is the ruler, the other person is like an advisor. They are both the rulers of the night court. And Reese doesn't even blink about making this decision. He just is like, yes, of course, you are my partner, you are my equal, you will be equal to me in all aspects of my life. This is, again, contrasted so heavily with Tamlin, who wanted Feyre to take a, a purely ceremonial position in his court and, uh, you know, actively worked against the decisions that she would have made as his like equal ruling partner in his court so Reese is all about we're on the same page you are my partner in all areas of my life part of this kind of like equality that they have with each other is that they each view the power and kind of like special skills that each of them have as a part of what they love about each other and not aspects to envy so Reese is not threatened by Feyre's magical powers that she gets after she's brought back from the dead. He sees that as a vital part of who she is and loves those powers, you know, as much as he loves the rest of her. And Feyre feels the same way. She 
well at the beginning is like intimidated because he's described as the most powerful high lord in like all of history or whatever and so there's like some intimidation of that but as they get to know each other and they grow closer Pharaoh really does see Reese's power as part of who he is and the way that he uses his power is part of what she learns to love about him the fact that he is very careful with his power and doesn't use it to harm people well I mean they do a lot of killing let's be honest there's a lot of there's a lot of killing in these books <laughs> but like he he always is using his powers to protect his people or vulnerable people and that aligns with Feyre's values and is part of you know why they have a strong such a strong connection again contrasted to Tamlin Tamlin saw Feyre's powers as something to be ignored and avoided and hidden and he was embarrassed of her powers and part I th- I interpreted it as partly because he didn't want her to outshine him because Tamlin is also a very powerful high lord and he maybe felt some threat that Pharaoh would be more powerful than him and you can't really control someone who's more powerful than you and he was also afraid that her power would make her a target for attack and so part of his protector role is to hide her powers from others but Reese encourages her to use her powers he's the one who trains her how to use them even though they're different than his you know he he doesn't see her as competition to himself or a threat to him he sees her as a powerful being in her own right so at the core Reese and Feyre have a much more egalitarian relationship rather than a relationship based on prescribed gender roles they have a relationship where they are able to communicate openly there's lots of examples in the book of Feyre openly disagreeing with Reese and when they first get together, she is afraid that he will react poorly because Tamlin would react poorly. And Reese demonstrates to her time and time again that he appreciates when she expresses herself truly and that he does not feel threatened by her publicly disagreeing with him. Um, but that they, you know, they, they also learn, you know, when to have private conversations versus having conversations in front of the rest of the court or other people as they, you know, navigate their relationship together. And I don't want to say that Reese and Feyre are like perfect and they do everything right. Um, there are quite a few uh, choices that Reese and Feyre make regarding each other that I wouldn't make. And I would say the biggest um, mistake that they make in their relationship actually comes in the fifth book, which is the Court of Silver Flames, where Feyre out of the blue gets pregnant <laughs> like I, I have thoughts about that but Feyre gets pregnant even though they said they weren't going to have a baby for like hundreds of years or whatever because they're immortal Feyre is pregnant and it turns out that her baby has wings because Reese has wings and the baby is going to kill her during childbirth and Reese decides to not tell Feyre this information and to keep it from her for I think in the timeline of the book, it's like at least a month, which is a lot of time in the pregnancy timeline. You know, it's it's a matter of months here. So keeping information like that to yourself for a month is is a lot. Um, and however, the book where this happens, we're not this. It's the book that hap- that's Nesta's point of view. So we don't get as much information about what happens with Reese and Feyre. But I I could imagine that for Feyre, that would be a little triggering of like what you're trying to protect me by hiding information from me 
And that is very specifically something that I could not tolerate in my past relationship. So things like that, Reese, he's not perfect, okay? He makes mistakes and he hides weird pregnancy information from his partner. But overall, I think their relationship is much more positive. So bouncing off of that, I wanted to talk about an article that I read by Cannavello and Crocker that was published in 2010 in the Journal of a Social Psychology, Personality and Social Psychology. And it's called Creating Good Relationships, Responsiveness, Relationship Quality, and Interpersonal Goals. And they did a kind of multi-tiered study where they actually looked at roommates. They didn't necessarily look at like romantic relationships, but they looked at roommates. And they measured things related to responsiveness and interpersonal goals. And they found a lot of really interesting results about how to increase responsiveness in relationships. And there, they do a lot of work in this area. And their um, kind of overarching theory is that responsiveness is pretty much crucial or the key to having a healthy relationship. So responsiveness encompasses the ability to be warm towards your partner, to be sensitive to their feelings and able to respond to their feelings, um, and having a kind of motivation to have your partner feel comfortable, understood, valued, cared for, etc., etc. And they conceptualize responsiveness as a cycle that occurs within the relationship. So if you, as a partner in a relationship, are more responsive to your partner, so warm towards your partner, sensitive to their feelings, the more you do that, the more likely you are to experience responsiveness from your partner. Now, they say that it's kind of more of like a perception or projection thing. So it's like the more responsive you are, the more you perceive your partner to be responsive. But then they say that this then kind of creates an upward cycle where both partners become ultimately do become more responsive in the relationship. So in this article, they were looking at or this study, they were looking at how do you increase responsiveness? And they found through a path analysis, which is a type of analysis we do to find causal relationships, so not just correlations, but causal relationships, they found that a way to increase responsiveness in relationships is to have compassionate goals. These are goals where your agenda is solely focused on supporting another person's well-being without any gain for yourself. So this could be like if in a relationship you have a goal for your partner to um, be able to come home and relax after work because you know they have a stressful job and you just want them to feel good when they come home from work. So maybe you do something like take over making dinner so they don't have to worry about it or um, doing like the after the evening chores or having like their favorite show ready to come like watch and settle in for the night when they get home from work, right? So the, the goal is for your partner to feel better after a long day at work and to not feel stressed. And not, it's not about, oh, I'm doing this so that I don't have to do, have a tough time with my partner, right? It's solely about making the other person feel good. They found that uh, across their research, they found that high levels of compassionate goals lead to lower levels of psychological entitlement, which means lower levels of focusing on your own needs in the relationship. So the more compassionate goals that you have, the less likely you are to be solely focused on what you get out of the relationship, which makes sense, right? If we have compassionate goals where we're focusing on other people, there's just going to be less time where we're thinking about ourselves. Uh, Having high levels of compassionate goals also led to 
um, both partners being more likely to believe that they can get what they need in the relationship. So compassionate goals helps people that are in some sort of partnership to feel like this person can have what they want and I can have what I want. We can both get our needs met rather than it being like a, a sacrifice or, you know, only one person wins here. Um, and high levels of compassionate goals are also linked to having higher levels of trust and an ability to feel close to other people. So the kind of mechanism for increasing this responsiveness and these kind of other benefits uh, that help relationships work is tied to having higher levels of compassionate goals. And I was uh, I was reading this article, I was like, oh, that is so interesting. Reese and Farah do have pretty clear compassionate goals that we hear about in an ongoing basis in the books. Before they even meet each other, they already are people that tend to focus on compassionate goals. Feyre was focusing on taking care of her family, and as she learns more about the Fey world, she has a, a drive to protect all humans from the evil Fey, and then to protect the, you know, the good Fey or the allies of the humans. She has this desire to protect them as well, and this de- desire is solely about protecting other people and not saying like, well, you know, this ultimately benefits myself, right? Because I'm like a human fae, so I want everyone to be protected. No, she just, she wants people to be protected and not have to live in suffering. Reese is the same way. His ultimate goal is to protect his people of the Night Court. And as we learn more about what Reese went through under Amarantha's rule, we realize that he really did sacrifice a lot for himself to protect his people and only for the protection of his people. He was not really getting, he was not really getting many kickbacks, if we can say it like that. So both Feyre and Reese come into the relationship already being people who are highly focused on compassionate goals. And as they get together, they start to take on mutual compassionate goals or they develop an ability to take on each other's compassionate goals. Reese starts to see that, you know, why Feyre wants humans to be protected. He also wants to protect the humans that live you know, beyond the Fey realms. And Feyre starts to take on the the desire to protect the people of the Night Court as well and sees why Reese has fought so passionately for his people and his city. Um, and they also, as they grow closer and they go, the inner circle grows closer, they all have these compassionate goals to take care of each other, right? The, the kind of core group of Morrigan, Azriel, Cassian, etc. Like, they all have, they both have these goals to protect those people as well. And so I think that Feyre and Reese's mutual compassionate goals increases their responsiveness to each other, which makes their relationship able to be healthy and able to continue on and have both partners get what they need out of the relationship and feel trust and closeness to each other. Whereas Tamlin and Feyre did not have the same compassionate goals. I think Tamlin, like, would have supported Feyre in her goal, but he wouldn't have taken on her goal of protecting humans in the same way. And he didn't really express many compassionate goals. So that's an area for Tamlin to focus on improving is like, how can he set some goals for himself that are truly about taking care of others and not just about himself? So I just, I found that article to be very interesting and then reflecting on Reese and Feyre's relationship, finding that common thread there of The things that do draw them together are an ability to care for each other and care for other people, 
without necessarily focusing on what they get out of it. Now, they do get a lot of great things out of the relationship with each other, and Feyre obviously does much better when she's with Reese than when she was with Tamlin, but their goal is not to like maximize how they feel, but to really be a team that's working together toward these overarching compassionate goals. So yeah, I will stand Reese and Feyre together until the end of time. And I, I don't think Sarah J. Moss could write anything that would convince me that they're not meant to be together. <laughs> Moving on to the last relationship that we're going to talk about today, we got to talk about Nesta and Cassian. Now, I would say that Nesta and Cassian are probably the most toxic relationship of like the main characters in the series, because these two cannot for the life of themselves figure out how to be around each other. The Almost the entirety of A Court of Silver Flames is Nesta and Cassian just being absolute buffoons around each other and not being able to effectively communicate. Now, a massive barrier to their relationship is the trauma that Nesta has gone through. And as I talked about in part one, Nesta has a lot of symptoms that map on to what we would call borderline personality disorder or complex PTSD. So if you need a refresher on that, you can listen to part one to learn more about Nesta. Now, Nesta and Cassian are another couple where there is a mating bond. So Feyre and Reese are mates that are like really excited about being mates with each other. Nesta and Cassian are mated, um, but they, they kind of fought it for a while. And then there is Elaine and Lucian, who we'll probably learn more about them in the next book that's coming out. But they're mated, but Elaine is very uninterested in being with Lucian. And I hope that Moss explores that in the world of like what denying a mate bond would look like and kind of what the fallout will be from that. Um, but we don't have enough information about them for me to talk about that right now. Um, but I do think it's interesting that Nesta and Cassian go through this kind of like, there, there's obviously a pull. They, they feel attracted to each other. There is like this connection that they have and that they had before Nesta even turned into a fae. Um, but Nesta's kind of life situation is really getting in the way of being able to feel close to anyone, let alone a romantic partner. And Nesta engages in a lot of what the Gottmans call the four horsemen of the apocalypse of relationships. I thought it was a good time to talk about those now. I don't think I've talked about them in detail on this podcast before, but if you are ever in the like relationship help uh, field, <laughs> the Gottmans are kind of like the go-to people and their four horsemen are all things that if they're going on in a relationship are going to lead to a relationship ending um and nesta is she's doing her damnedest to try to keep cassian away from her so she's all in on the four horsemen um however we see that as nesta starts to heal she doesn't engage in those behaviors and their relationship is able to develop so let me go through the four horsemen and give you some examples from our sweet friend Nesta. <laughs> uh, I pulled this from an article on the Gottman blog that was written by Ellie uh, Lissitisia. Uh, however, this is all based on the Gottman's work uh, around the four horsemen. So the first horseman is criticism, and they differentiate criticism from complaints. So a complaint is where you, you voice a specific issue to your partner. So 
maybe letting your partner know that you're upset with them because they missed an important date like your anniversary. That's a complaint because it's tied to a specific issue and you're letting your partner know that like, you would like to try to solve this issue. Criticism is where you engage in attacks on your partner's character. So that would be like maybe you're in the same situation where the partner missed an anniversary, but rather than saying, you know, I'm upset that you missed this, I'd like to talk about it, you say something like, you're so selfish, you can only think about yourself, that's why you forgot our anniversary. So this kind of like attack, um, overarching critique of like a a partner's personality or character rather than dealing with a specific issue. Nesta does this a lot, particularly in in books 4.5 and 5. She throws around words like brute whenever she's talking to Cassian and the insinuation is that she thinks he's stupid or he's like too like big and dumb to be able to do anything in life really, but specifically to be able to do kind of like the court intrigue that he gets into in the in the last book. Um, and this is often how she like cuts off conversation with him. Like she goes right to this criticism and it's always about like um, personality characteristics and not like a specific instance between them that she would like to rectify. The interesting thing is that in Nesta's book, she tells us through her own narration that she knows she is doing this to hurt Cassian and it is a way that she is pushing him away from her is by making these overarching critiques and attacks on his personality rather than than com- complaints. Um, so Ness is aware that that horseman is present in her relationship with Cassian. She does this less as she starts to heal herself. So I think that we can conceptualize that Nesta's use of the four horsemen of the apocalypse are as defense mechanisms. She does not want anyone to be close to her because her biggest fear is that people will know how bad she is, that they will understand her more if they get close and they'll see that she's rotten inside because that is how she feels. So even though she's doing these behaviors that are like attacking and on the offense, she's doing them out of the sense of like, I have to defend because I I don't want to hurt anyone by how awful I can be when they get close to me. So I'll just be awful to them up front. The logic doesn't work out super well, but that is often what happens when people have been hurt, um, particularly when they've been like hurt in relationships with others. And I think that's also what makes it possible for Cassian and Nesta to work through these things is that Nesta isn't doing them that, them out of a sense of like how much she hates Cassian, but she's doing it out of a sense of how much she hates herself. And that can be repaired. If you hate your partner so much that you're attacking them all the time, don't be with them. Right? <laughs> I usually don't give like blanket advice like that, but if you truly despise your partner, why are you with them? It's, it's let's go. Time to move on. <laughs> Find someone that you actually enjoy being around. Okay, so that was the first one, criticism. Nesta's great at it. She's got a lot of critiques ready to launch at Cassian and truly anyone who gets near her. Um, the second horseman is contempt. And this is just general meanness that has an underlying message of superiority or I'm better than you. This can, this can include things that are verbal, like making jabs at a partner or calling them names. It can also include nonverbal behaviors like... Uh, rolling your eyes every time your partner talks or scoffing when they say something, things like that. Nesta is the queen of contempt. She's so good at it. She does it all the time. And she does it to non-romantic partners as well. This is kind of her 
general approach to other people, particularly people who want to get close to her um, in the beginning of her story before she starts to heal. She does it to the priestesses in the library. She does it to the Illyrian girl that she ends up being best friends with. She does it to her sisters, to Cassian, to Reese, to as she does it to everybody. Um, she loves a rolling in the eye. She loves a scoff. Uh, she, and, and what characters say back to her, the feedback they give to her is often like you, you're acting like you're better than us. And Again, we know from Nesta's internal narration that she does not truly think that she's better than other people, but this is how she's acting to sort of shield herself from people telling her you're, you're not as cool as you think you are. Um, so contempt is just another wall she's built around herself to kind of protect herself. She does it with Cassian a lot, a lot of like the jabs. Um, but she stops doing it as much as she gets closer to, like, her own healing. Now, I want to be clear that, like, if you are a person who likes more sarcastic humor, um, or maybe, like, even if sometimes you just get frustrated with your partner and you roll your eyes, it's not like every single time you do that you're being, like, contemptuous of your partner. Like, I'll be honest, I love a sarcastic joke. I love a little light teasing, you know, with people that I'm close to. I think it can be all fun uh, as long as everybody thinks it's fun. But if you're doing it out of this perspective of like, I want to tear this person down or I need them to know that I'm better than them, then then we're in contempt territory. So it really is about intention and it's not con- when the Gottmans talk about contempt, they're not talking about like one off experiences. Like you're frustrated with your partner. So you roll your eyes. It's like, if this is how you, normally interact with your partner or this is how you like consistently interact with them during times of conflict then there's going to be a problem in your relationship and I don't think I said this before but the the reason they're called the horse four horsemen of the apocalypse is because they typically mean that relationships are not going to continue if any of these are present in a relationship number three is defensiveness uh the Gottmans say that this is typically a response to criticism from partners and it typically involves coming up with excuses for behavior. So if one partner has engaged in horseman number one, which is criticism, horseman number three is going to be following soon after because the partner that's doing the critiquing is going to be met with defensiveness by the other partner. Um, The defensive response is typically about shifting blame back to the original partner. So it could be something like... um, you know, partner asks you or says to you, you know, you're so lazy. You didn't um, change the bed sheets this week. Like I asked you to because you're lazy. You're like a lazy, selfish piece of trash. And then you come back at them with, uh, of course, I didn't change the sheets because I've been so busy. How dare you like not understand that I've been busy and overwhelmed. Like maybe you should be a better partner and know that I'm so busy, right? So the the defensiveness is about like, oh, I'm getting critiqued. I'm going to push it right back to you and I'm going to shift the blame back to, you know, the partner that started with the question. Nesta doesn't do this with Cassian as much, but she does this with her sister a lot. So every, pretty much every early interaction that Nesta and Feyre have in book 4.5 and 5 is Nesta using this defensiveness against Feyre. Feyre is doing her best. She's, you know, she's not a therapist. She's just a, a human girl who became a fairy. 
and often I think comes at Nesta with an approach of like, well, you're not doing enough to help yourself. So Feyre does come at her sister with the criticism of like, there's something wrong with Nesta, that she's not doing enough to recover from what's happened to her. So of course, Nesta is going to respond with defensiveness. And um, she often, her response back to Feyre are things like, um, why would you even offer me help? I'm not asking for it. How dare you assume that I need your help? Um, and then is like, you seem to like have never cared about me. Why all of a sudden do you care about me? So Nessa always gets that last little dig in about like, oh, now all of a sudden you're concerned about my well-being. And insinuating that's because like Feyre is wanting to get something out of it. So I would say that the defensiveness is more in line with how Nesta interacts with her sister. Although I'm sure she could do it with Cassian if she wanted to. <laughs> and lastly, the fourth horseman of the apocalypse is stonewalling. This is often a response to contempt. It is the complete withdrawal from the partner. This includes things like no longer responding when a partner is speaking to you, withdrawing emotional warmth, even doing things like pulling out your phone when your partner is talking to you to ignore them or physically turning away from a partner. The author of the Gottman Institute blog post notes that stonewalling often begins after the other three have been in play longer. It's typically not the first response that we go to. Um, however, if you are newly entering into a relationship with someone and they are already stonewalling you, that I'm going to go ahead and say that's a red flag and you should probably reach out for some help um, just to process that. In our book, Nesta is very good at stonewalling. You can tell that over her entire life, this has been something that she's learned has been effective in dealing with other people. And the more that she feels under attack by the world around her and the more that she is struggling with herself, the more that she stonewalls. And she stonewalls effectively every character in the book by the time we get to Court of Silver and Flame. She stonewalled both of her sisters she stonewalled Cassian, like, to the point where she, like, slams the door on him when he's trying to give her a, a Christmas present. Well, I guess it's not Christmas in the book. It's winter solstice, but whatever. Like, he's trying to, you know, reach out to her and include her in things. And she's like, no, she shuts the door. She turns away. She will straight up, like, not respond to people when they talk to her. Um, and again, she is aware that she does this and, and sees it as a defense mechanism against having anyone perceive her. And she perceives contempt from her friends and family. She thinks that Cassian thinks she's like uh, lower than a slug and only worthy of pity. She thinks that Feyre and Elaine think that she's disgusting and a horrible creature. So because she perceives this contempt from the people around her, they, she then responds with things like the stonewalling or the c defensiveness and the critique. Um, again, it's not really happening, and because we're readers of the book and we can have access to other people's minds, we know that they, I mean, there are some characters in the book that definitely, like, do pity Nesta and, like, in a way look down on her for that. However, most of the characters in the book are like, we understand that she's hurting and we want to help her, but Nesta only perceives that as contempt, and that is kind of what keeps her in a cycle for so long, is... Everybody seems to be on the uh, offensive to her, so she has to stay on the defensive. Um, so she's a she's good at stonewalling. She really, I, you know, you gotta hand it to her. She's good at all of this. However, I do think it is important to note that as she starts to be better, right? She starts to heal and process what's gone on with her. 
she uses these things less and less. And so not to say that her trauma is an excuse for her inviting the horsemen of the apocalypse into her relationships, but they do help us understand why she's defaulting to them rather than attempting to build positive relationships with the people in her life. So if you want to learn more about the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse, the Gottmans have a lot of resources on their website, and I think they have a couple of books that address it as well, and like YouTube videos and stuff. Um, but I just thought it was interesting how it maps on to, to good old Nesta, who is, you know, I have a fondness for her. She's becoming one of my favorite characters, um, and I am excited to see that if in book six, she, her kind of, her transformation sticks with her. All right, the final little section are just a couple of like feminist choices that I wanted to point out that I think that Moss includes in her book um, that are interesting and kind of against the genre or the stereotype we have of like the fantasy genre. The first is that choice is such a big factor in this book, and most of the biggest or traumas that the women go through are related to not having a choice. So. Um, like for Feyre, the, the thing that haunts her the most is having to kill the two Fey and Amarantha's challenge. And I talked about that in episode one. And the, the kind of aspect of that that troubles Feyre so much is that she feels that she should have made a different choice, even though with all the information she had at the time, there was not another option. That was the really the only choice that she could have made in the moment. So having her her choice and her agency stripped away from her as part of what makes the experience so traumatic for her. And she doesn't suffer from nightmares as much about the other two challenges, like uh, the worm or the one where she couldn't read. I always forget that one of her main character traits was being illiterate in the first book. She does learn to read, though. Don't worry. She figures it out. Um... But those two, the worm and the reading one, it was there wasn't this, this element of like all choice was taken away from her. And in fact, the reason she defeats the worm is because she's able to make some creative choices to fight a giant man-eating worm with no weapons. But the part where Amarantha tells her to basically slaughter two fae, it haunts Vera because her choice was taken away from her. The same is for Elaine and Nesta being turned by the cauldron. They did not have a choice in that matter. And the way that Moss writes about that experience for them very much parallels like a sexual assault or other type of like coercive experience. And so this like lack of choice, lack of agency over one's body and actions is seen in this universe of a court and throat of roses as being one of the most traumatic instances that could happen to someone um and there's other kind of like more minor characters well i guess more isn't really a minor morgan isn't a minor character but like kind of on the periphery of our main characters we see um examples of opportunities or options where women had their choice taken away so morgan being forced into marriage with someone from the autumn court she is like frantic with the fact that she doesn't have a choice in it and makes choice makes some choices to try to ruin that um situation but there's still choices that she probably wouldn't have made if she had full agency and control over herself and the repercussions of that situation have followed Morrigan through literally almost a thousand years of her life. Because again, these these guys really are immortal. <laughs> they, really, they really do be living a long time. 
Uh, and so I think I just thought it was so interesting that Moss focuses on this, and I, I think it really parallels real life, like <laughs> human life, that uh, oftentimes traumatic events do have this element of we didn't have a choice, we didn't have an option, or we were in situations where we were presented with very limited options, and so we chose the ones that were. Um, that were best at the time, but not the ones we would have made had we had true agency. Um, and that can haunt people. That's why people blame themselves for the traumas that they've been through. Or that's why people experience survivor's guilt of like, maybe I should have made a different choice that didn't save myself, but somehow saved someone else. All of this kind of boils down to choice. Um, so I, I like that Moss kind of highlights that. And part of the healing journey for a lot of the characters in Moss's books are building agency and capacity to make their own choices and that's we'd love to see it we love a we love a consent queen <laughs> speaking of moss also writes a lot about sex obviously if you've read any of the books you, you know that it's in there but she writes a lot about sex with agency where the women are truly in control of what is happening with their sexuality and with their um their choices for themselves. Um, sex is something that many of the characters use as part of their healing or attempting to heal journey. Again, Nesta being our maladaptive queen, she uses risky sex to kind of numb herself um, before she starts her her healing journey. Um, but Nesta then also has experiences in her relationship with Cassian where her ability to kind of take agency over the choices they make about having sex with each other is part of her healing. Vera and Reese, it's the same thing. Like she is given control over when she has sex with him and when she decides to and uh, what that means for her. And Reese, you know, kind of makes sure that she has that agency to make those choices. And it is like a part of their healing journey and, I think Moss kind of uses it as a sign of like they're much closer to being fully healed when they're like getting it on <laughs> um, in, in this like specific way that Moss writes where it's like it's all about consent, which I love. I love to see. And I'm, I'm glad that she includes it. Um, she also addresses a lot of these non-consensual situations, which obviously like any non-consensual sex is going to be a trauma and not good but she addresses these kind of like gray area situations in very interesting ways and the one being with Reese because we learned that for the 50 years that Amarantha kind of had a grip on the fairy realm Reese was her I don't even know what you would say but he was like her basically he was Amarantha's royal consort but the whole thing was like she would have sex with him every night and even though Reese like technically consented to that and like made the choice to have sex with Amarantha nightly it is a form of assault because he was coerced into it and basically made the decision because it would protect his people it was either his people be raided and destroyed by Amarantha's army or he be coerced into having sex with her and so Moss has the characters deal with this situation that Reese was in and the characters knowing that Reese did it to protect them like Cassian and Azrael and Morgan and knowing that he did this for a specific person and to keep them safe but also wrestling with like we would not have asked you to do that 
and we would have found another way but also wrestling with like this is something that happened to Reese and he has to deal with it and kind of process it on his own um you know Moss tends to spend more time on her female character so we don't get to see as much of Reese processing it but I do think it was an interesting situation that she presented and she has her characters work through these conversations um about like consent and agency around sex relationships to bodies to partners to sex in general uh it's very interesting and i think that she does take a a feminist approach to it because the main through line is is that you know you are the only one who gets a say in what happens to your body and anything that happens to your body against your say is wrong is traumatic or is you know morally and ethically wrong just the one last thing that i'll sprinkle in because i feel like i'm constantly gushing about sarah j moss the one thing i'm gonna add in that i'm a little disappointed in is the way that she handles like queer characters or giving us gay characters i feel like she really dragged her feet on that and we don't find out that more is pretty much singularly attracted to women until i think it's the third book yeah the third book um, where more like very reluctantly discloses to Feyre that she's attracted to women because Feyre keeps trying to meddle in her relationship and figure out why she won't be with one of the bat boys. <laughs> and we like barely get a glimpse of Morgan like sharing this part of herself in that book and then she spends like almost all of book five or book four, whatever, being gone. <laughs> um Court of Silver and Flames, like, more is constantly not at the night court. So we haven't really gotten to see what it means for more to be gay, how she's going to explore that aspect of herself. Um, And I'm really, really hoping that the next book has some aspect of that and allows us to see, like, what is it like to be a gay fairy? I would love to know because pretty uh, these fairies seem to be pretty aggressively heterosexual and i would love to see them mix it up just get a little a little variety in there um but yeah so i i think that it can be well done it just it is a bummer that it like took so many pages and words for us to get to this point um and that it it kind of comes out of left field like it's teased that morgan is going to end up with one of the boys I guess unless you're reading it like it's the Da Vinci Code, you might have noticed beforehand, but it's not like even explicitly dealt with until uh, Moore is tired of Feyre trying to like meddle in her relationship, which is not a great way to come out. Um, no one should feel pressured into coming out and you should you should never feel like you're in a you're in a situation where you have to come out just to stop someone from speculating on your relationship. But I digress. We can talk about that more when the next book comes out, which is I, I think is coming soon. And you know that I'll be here to talk about it and break down more themes. So with that, that's all I have to say for now about A Court of Thorn and Roses. I'm curious what you guys think. Is anyone else listening as gripped by the series as I am? Um, You can email me or DM me on Instagram to share your thoughts. Um, But with that, I will just say thank you for listening all the way through to the end. And I'll see you in the next one. Bye-bye.